Many of you will probably be familiar with today's guest. Adam is great because he's a super humble athlete who has put a ton of his own resources into the sport of distance skateboarding. You can always expect to hear a genuine conversation when speaking with him because he simply has no hidden agenda. He is truly a man of science and jazz, which it turns out is also a science of its own. We talk a little bit about this, but mostly about the contributions he's made, especially recently with the new Pantheon Karma Wheel. No surprise, you can expect to hear ultra skate reflections, but also much more. Adam has an excellent vision for what the future of distance skateboarding could look like, and some of the things that we can all be doing to get there. As always, I'm your host, Max Frank. Sit back and enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to Skating in Circles. I'm here with Adam Ornelis. Adam, how's it going? Doing great. Um, thanks for having me. Yeah, man, we're happy to have you on the show. Uh, where are you right now? So the listeners know where you're stationed at the moment. Right now I'm in the skating heaven of Madison, Wisconsin, which I say unironically, even though that sounds ironic. But yeah, actually, when I moved to the Midwest, I had no idea that I'd be able to never drive again and skate everywhere. So... <laughs> So what's that, what's that like? Is there just trails like right outside your house and stuff or just yeah. easy to get around? So I live between two lakes and it's like a land bridge. And because of that, they don't really have parking. It, so people don't drive places. Okay. So there's like 250 miles of bike trails. So I either take that or public transit. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, that's really cool. So the trails must be pretty wide too. Then it's like probably pretty chilled just to skate around. Yeah, it's not like other places where there's like tourists and people walking their dog. They're really just like bike paths people use to get around. And they got little counters to count the bikes. And usually there's like 5,000, 10,000 people using the bike path a day sort of thing. They count the bikes? How do they do that? They have like a little LED sign. Oh, and it even counts okay. the skateboard somehow. I don't know how that works. but That's pretty neat. That's pretty neat. I would love something like that. Like, I feel like more areas in the U.S. could could emulate that. And just put yeah, trails I, everywhere. I, yeah, I love that the geo the geography of there you just made it so it's like, oh, I guess we have to be bikeable because nobody can park on this land bridge. It's great. <laughs> Force them into it. That's cool. So yeah, this is a skateboarding podcast. I gotta ask you a question. When was your first time riding a skateboard? Oh man, I mean my first time riding a skateboard like was a typical like target skateboard experience where you get something that doesn't really roll or turn maybe when I was like eight or nine. And then I want to say the first time I really rode something. Um, well, actually, my friend's brother was uh, one of the guys who started loaded. I mean, his brother's friend was somebody who started loaded. Cool. So we had all the weird stuff. So I was like, I remember riding a Vanguard and my friend's loaded hammerhead which is really a throwback board uh, <laughs> when I was maybe like, I don't know, 10 or 11. And nice. then when I was, I want to say when I was like 12 or 13, I bought my penny board and that eventually turned into a longboard a year later and, you know, downhill sort of longboarding, but I was pushing everywhere. Yeah. I pushed probably like 12 miles on my penny board all the time. Did you really? Yeah. And like flip flops. Those but. little tiny penny boards. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I remember I had one in my, um, I had it in the kitchen when I was in college. We had like a tile floor kitchen somehow, like acquired this in like this shitty apartment. And I just had the uh, the penny board there. Well, it was super <laughs> safe for when you were cooking, of course. But 
Oh yeah. I had like a, we had like wood floors as a kid and my parents were pretty relaxed and I totally ripped stick and penny board around the living room as a really? kid. Yeah. <laughs> I guess I was skating a little bit earlier, but then, wooden then, floors. 12 then but that's cool. So you were already kind of ripping some distance on the, just naturally flip flops, yeah. penny board. Yeah, when I think about it, I might be one of the younger. I mean, it's just like a product of me being younger than some of the other guys in LDP. But mm -hmm. I, I think I grew up my whole life skating pretty far on longboards. Like, I know I'd, I'd skate 13 miles to cross country practice and then 13 miles back after running for like 14 miles. That's wild. So it's like my coach hated me. It probably wasn't great for my running, but I guess this whole time I've been training myself and I didn't realize it. <laughs> It's interesting to talk about that. Like there's no distance riders who have been, or there, there are, right? Like people have been skateboarding their whole life, but riding long distances like that, I would consider like 13 miles a long, I mean, you rode 13 miles back after that. So like it's a sizable distance to ride, you know, especially if you don't have the gear and you're new and, and, and all that. So that's pretty cool. You, you said you were running, so you've already been, you're an endurance guy. Like you kind of grew up that way. Yeah, um, I think when I was like 12, I was running like 50 miles a week. What? Maybe 60, 70. When I was 13 and 14, I was already running marathons. And I think that's like a fun fact about me is that I have a six foot two wingspan. Really? Size torso as somebody who'd be six foot two. But my legs are just really short. And I think it's because when I was like 12 and 13, I was going to the gym every day. And also running like marathons and like 10 miles a day. You think it stunted your growth? I think I just stunted my growth. Yeah. You don't think waving your hands with all the running made them longer? You just kind of like <laughs> stretched mean, them out? I could just be like a monkey too. <laughs> I don't remember. Titus was like, dang, dude, that's why you're like a monkey. <laughs> I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> what are you yeah. <laughs> oh, that's cool. That's actually a really fun fact. 6'2 wingspan. And you're... You got to be like 5'10", right? Tall? 5'8". Five, 5'8". Eight. Yeah. Five, eight. Oh, like, wow. My wingspan is incredibly longer than my body. Yeah, that's I, that's a lot longer. I've always wished I had longer legs, but I, I work with it. <laughs> you know, yeah, it doesn't seem to stop you, man. You know, you've been doing pretty well. We were just talking before this about this uh, sort of pound for pound theory you have where if you were to go up against some of these, you know, really athletic guys in the scene guys like jeff and paul and if you guys both had the same exact resources same exact setup you think they would beat you but your ability to kind of capitalize on technology and like refining little components is is sort of how you get your edge you think yeah exactly i mean when i think about it like just in terms of like Pure talent, I'd say. I'm definitely lower on the scale some of, than some of the people that have existed in, in distance skating. But the idea is that, you know, I look at everything and I try to optimize everything. And like things like my form or aerodynamics, especially my form, things like that, I can really like adjust just to be a little bit more efficient. And mm -hmm. by focusing on details, I feel like you can make really big gains. Yeah. So. Well, I think... You, you talk about talent, right? And I think talent comes in many forms, though. So you should give yourself credit for, like, finding this edge and being like, oh, I'm good at this part, you know, so I'm going to refine and, you know, I can, you know, if you spend enough time and, like, enough energy 
thinking about this stuff, thinking about form and really digging into it. I feel like that in itself is a talent, right? That you build. It's a, it takes time in itself. It takes effort, which is what those guys have put in to get where they are. Right. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, they might have some natural gift to them, but obviously, you know, like mentioned Jeff, Jeff's been a cross country athlete all his life. I'm pretty sure like growing up as a younger guy. Right. And same with Paul. So like, um, everyone's worked really hard. Right. And you have too, right. So give yourself some credit there. Yeah. Thanks. Um, no, yeah. Also it's just not even like capitalizing on your talents. I think for me, it's like, I have the ability to switch between things quickly. So everything I do, I try to focus on the things that make me the most uncomfortable. Hmm. So it's like improving all my weak spots. So there is no weak spot. It's kind of my thing. Right. So like I'm never on the board and feeling comfortable with what I'm doing. I'm always on like the edge of balance. I always feel like I'm gonna fall, that sort of thing, because I want to like improve that every day when I'm training. Right. Never like, never settling, never comfortable. Yeah, it doesn't seem. So I watched one of your videos and you were talking about training, and you're like, yeah, so we do a tempo week, and then we do another tempo week, and then you know it was like it was like I didn't see the rest week coming in at any point. I was like, oh, I guess he just doesn't really like. You just kind of rest when you have to, it seems. And like, I think that's an, it's a really, it's a, you know, training is tough. And I would like to hear your thoughts kind of on this. Like, is there ever a point where you're like, I'm going too hard? Like that mentality you said where you're like, oh, I'm always on the edge. I'm always trying to improve. Like, when do you know, like, oh, I'm going too far. I need to take a break. Because I assume there is a breaking point, correct? Or Yeah, there are. <laughs> um and I think that's the thing people struggle with the most, actually, is not people can like hurt themselves pretty well. And the thing is recovering to fix that because it's all about hurting yourself and then fixing that. Your body becomes stronger. Um, people really focus on like digging a ditch for themselves and being in pain, but they kind of they ride the middle ground where what I do is I ride really hard and then when I rest, I rest. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people are like, I'm just going to beat myself up every day. And what that does is if you're going to go as hard as you can for an hour, that's really not like, it's not benefiting you too much Mm -hmm. um, because then you're just going to be fatigued and you're really going to be performing like 80% to something where you'd be racing. So preferably you'd rather rest and then take two or three days where you're riding 110% of what you can do every 10 minutes and then rest for a second and then really like beat yourself, go faster than you feel comfortable but if you're just riding as hard as you can on your commute, you know, that's really like 80% of what you can do because that's as hard as you can for 20 minutes, period. Mm-hmm. But then when you're racing, you need to go faster than your commute. So uh, people just like to beat themselves up every day, but you could probably work less if you just recover and then work harder when you need to. Mm-hmm. So some sort of like interval training and like, I think that's just it, right? Dialing it in to the point where you you've planned it all out. So... When you're out on a ride, you don't go too hard accidentally just because you're you're fired up or you got excited or something. You're trying to catch a cyclist or something like that, right? Like Yeah, yeah. Like you you pick your battles, you choose an easy day and you stay easy. Yeah. Or you pick a hard day and it's way too hard. You know, you can't just be like, I'm just gonna wing it and go pretty hard all day. Cause that I mean that makes you faster, of course, but it maybe it doesn't get you to that top one percent if you're really trying the race. So like heart rate zones, that plays a big role in your training though, you would say, so, like every time you go out? Sort of. Um, 
they're a great like reference for people just because it's like you understand how much you can do for a certain amount of time. But after a while, you can use perceived exertion. Like a lot of professional athletes can use perceived exertion after having other things as like kind of kind of like a reference point. So for me, I'm I'm kind of going off of perceived exertion now, but because heart rate can lie to you because yeah. caffeine, hydration, temperature, which is a big thing at Ultrascape. But, temperature, yeah. Good yeah. one. I call that the Eric Danger method, the perceived exertion. I remember asking him once, like, oh, do you have a heart rate monitor? He's like, no, I don't really need one anymore. Like, he's just dialed yeah, in. Yeah, it's that classic thing. And I probably use this one too much because I used to play jazz and saxophone in college and stuff. It's uh, this saying that I used to not understand as a kid, but now I think of it all the time as an adult is like, in jazz, you need to know all the rules before you break the rules. And it's like, you know, you're like, why do I need to do, why can't I just improvise first? But the reality is like, if you don't understand your limits and exactly what you need to be doing, improvising, you're just going to be all over the place. There'll yeah. be no like coherency and you're going to really screw up. <laughs> so somebody like Eric is wise and knows his body really well, but maybe somebody who's getting into it would benefit from using something like a heart rate. They get a better understanding of what they're doing. Yeah. Or back into it, right? If If you've been off the game for a while, it's, it's good to sort of see where you're at when you come back and, and know how hard you can push yourself, right? Like oh, yeah, you come back from injury yeah. or something. Sometimes I use heart rate just because it's like, I feel like, you know, you got to reacquaint yourself and realize that you can push yourself harder once in a while. And heart rate numbers can kind of force you to come to the reality that you need to work harder. Mm -hmm. It is fun too, to like look at the numbers, especially looking back at them, you know? Oh yeah, people love looking at numbers. Me too, yeah. You know, you, you'll be like one six, or you'll be like, you know, whatever, like one sixty. Like, oh, that's pretty tough. I don't know if I can do that for eight hours or whatever. But you, you only know your limits by like seeing, you know, seeing it in some form. I guess like you need some tangible way to kind of gauge it at first. I guess. Yeah, and then once you get to the point where you really understand your body and ultra skate comes, then you can ignore it a little bit, but use it as a guide. Ultra skate. I was like, okay, I gotta stay in my heart rate zones, and I was keeping it low. Second year, I was like, I gotta, I gotta go faster if I at least want to try. And that was a really hot year, and I got screwed up by the heat. But I realized it could run way higher than I thought. And the third year, I averaged 155 beats per minute, for, which is literally literature-wise impossible. Averaging but, it exactly, yeah. yeah. Yeah, my average was 155. I was hitting like 170, which is really high. Yeah. People don't know. You shouldn't be able to hold that for more than an hour. And that's a good example of you got to be able to know your body well. And then you could ignore the heart rate sometimes. <laughs> but that's like a good reference point. It's like, geez. <laughs> Ultra skate is, is a different beast, right? Because you'll be out there and you're like, you're trying to, to hang... Like you're saying, you're trying to keep your heart rate low. You're trying to keep it chill, but everything's just so out of your control. Like even just being excited. I remember like doing a lap, the first lap one year, I was just really pumped and I wasn't even going that fast. I looked down and I'm like, I'm at like 170, dude. I'm just like, what, what's going on? <laughs> like not even working that hard. Yeah. And the tension is killing you because people are looking at you like, Hey, are you going to go faster? And you're, I'm like, I, I'm doing my own thing, guys. I don't know what you're yeah. doing. <laughs> I am curious. So you said you've gone to three ultras, three ultra skate Miami. Yeah. Yeah. First one uh, was the one Joe set the record at. And that one was like, I didn't really know what I was doing, but the temperature is great. Piece of cake went 291 first ultra. Nice. Yeah. Second that's the one. Record. It was like hot as crap. 
Uh, that was 2022. Yeah, and that one, like, I think Andy, like, had, like, heat stroke or something, and it was just, like, everyone was having heat stroke. Paul was having heat stroke, and I was, like, just out there trying to survive and not throw up. Yeah. And then third year, it was just as hot, but I was kind of more ready for it. <laughs> yeah, you and looked I good. Got over 300. Yeah, that was a fun. That was fun to see. Uh, I remember. So, I was just talking to Gavin, and we were talking about 2022 and how how intense of a year it was. And like you mentioned, how hot it was for all day, and then finally the sun comes down and it starts raining. Like, <laughs> yeah, that was awful actually because yeah. it was humid, and then you don't cool down at all. Yeah, it just like steam coming right off the pavement, you know. Yeah, I don't know. I look. There's not a lot of good references for how awful Miami is, but I guess like when you look at like Matthew Bond's distances, oh I know, like, God, yeah. One year he did like Le Mans. He did like at Le Mans. He did like two eighty, two ninety, and then this year at Ultra he did like two forty. I think. Damn. It, yeah. It just because like it just the temp the temperature is just so ridiculous. Like temperature is the worst thing that could happen to you in an endurance sport. I think uh, the numbers are like every certain degrees, you can kind of calculate how much energy you lose, like peak fitness wise, every degree your body temperature goes up and it can be like 10 to 15%. Wow. So you could be 10 to 15% slower just because of the temperature. Or wind, right? Um, oh yeah, the wind both years is like 15, 20 miles per hour. It's re- but it it kind of comes back on the tail end. It, I mean, you don't it get does, everything back. But. Right, yeah. It, and that's a fun concept to like think about. I remember 2020 was windy. It was like really nice for three hours. And then all hell broke loose. It started raining. The wind picked up. And the rain eventually like died down at hour 12. But the wind was still going strong until like, you know, early in the next morning. So every backstretch you you went on, it was just like full face wind just like blocking you. And it was, it was so bad, dude. Like I remember some people could barely skate, like, especially after, you know, 16 hours or whatever. And like, you don't get it back on the backstretch when it's that bad. Right. Because like, number one, this is the stretch where you're at the pit stop. Yeah. So you're like trying to slow down, but it's also just like, over quicker (laughs) so like you then you have to work hard again and like i don't know the wind wind is a really funny factor especially with like an out and back or a loop track it just it never seems fair the number one thing with wind is you just can't fight it i mean if it's like 30 miles per hour winds then you stop so you do have to fight it but like the reality is like you just have to take it as what it is because if you work harder against it it's gonna catch up with you and then you're done yeah yeah, like you can't keep up your pace, you know, whatever pace you're trying when it's that strong. I can get aerodynamic and get a couple extra miles per hour when it's really windy on the back stretch. That's true. Um, yeah. You can you can also like get up against the barriers and then you get some nice wind effects where it's not quite as bad, but sometimes the wind goes against it and makes it worse. So you have to It's also where everyone pees. Right next to the yeah. bear. <laughs> um, That's a secret, though. Yeah. Yeah, top secret. Nobody knows. Yeah. Um, you mentioned uh, Matthew Bond, and I think Matthew Bond is a really good textbook example. There are other people like this, but he's a great example of someone who's been to, like, every ultra skate. So he knows, like, he's been to Dutch, he's been to Miami, and um, 
I don't know if he's been to the UK one, but you know, like he's, he's seen a lot of the different, uh, sort of what the weather can do at an ultra scale. And Le Mans, you said that that was the third one. Yeah. Um, so yeah, like, yeah, that's awesome that he's done that. Yeah. And he's always putting up numbers. It's like usually above 200, I, you know, it's, which is so hard to do again, talking with Gavin about this, you can do as many ultras as you want and like, you'll know more, your experience is going to help you, but the task itself of like skating 200, skating 100 miles, whatever, it never gets easier. Yeah, that's a, it's always like, I'm never going to do it again situation once you really like die. I mean, last year, actually, I felt perfectly like fine. I didn't even have a single moment where I was like, I want to quit, but really, yeah, second year I was like, I had a ripping headache the whole time when I did 280 in the heat, I had a ripping headache and wanted to throw up for like 14 hours. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's brutal. And that's just it, right? The ultra skate like compounds all your discomfort. So if you're if you're out on a ride, like a normal ride, and you're like, oh, I feel kind of sick. It's like, oh, okay, I'll get home and I'll take a nap or some shit, right? At ultra skate, it's like, oh, I feel kind of sick. I'm going to feel like this for the next 10 hours. <laughs> like, Yeah, oh, like no. dumb little things make a big difference. I realized I've been using compression socks the last three years. In the middle of th- year three, I was like, oh, my compression socks actually like my legs swell up to the well they don't swell up but like my compression socks cut off the blood in my arteries mm-hmm. and that's why my hamstrings hurt i always thought i had like a hamstring tweak that happened around like 12 hours into a ride but actually it was just the compression socks cutting off blood to my leg that's really interesting and then when i took them off i got like an extra mile per hour really <laughs> in the second half of the third ultra so i was like well crap that's like a really stupid reason to be in pain for two years i just didn't even consider that it's like a thing. Yeah, that's a really good point. Even shoes, I think, is a good idea. I was wearing the the five fingers for a while. I really like them. They're great shoes. I stopped wearing them for like a Merrill trail glove, which is like more of a sock. There's no, obviously yeah. there's no fingers. And uh, that helps with like whenever my feet swell, you know? You know, it's funny because uh, that's another thing with Ultra and all these other things is uh. I um, always have been a minimalist shoe guy. Like even before minimalist shoes were a thing, like I was like, what, 12, 11? When I was 11, I was running minimalist. So that was before they even had like lems and stuff. Mm-hmm. Or so I was actually running in like Warache sandals and stuff in 2010, 2011, really? I guess. <laughs> even earlier, like 2007. Yeah. Or, or running flats before they had those. So like, that's been a good translation because, you know, you have to adjust to minimalist shoes like those vapor gloves. You can't just go straight to it sometimes. Yeah. But yeah, I've always, I've always been minimalist. I've always, and I think that's part of the reason why I don't get injured. The minimalist shoes are, uh, it's a really good point you made. Like my, my partner's just learning to skate and she was using the the minimalist shoes and like they weren't doing it for her. Yeah, it's a big thing because like your feet change, your body changes, and it, you can't just ad- adapt to it instantly. Yeah, and if you use like uh, like skate shoes or something like that, you might have a better time just because your foot needs to grow into the the like ability to ride the board, right? You know what I mean? Like all those little tiny muscles you just wouldn't use otherwise. It's amazing. Like Hannah's when I take Hannah, my significant other, skating. It's like, she's like, man, my arches are screwed. And it's been like 30 minutes. And I'm like, man, that doesn't happen to me anymore. But I guess that's true. That used to happen. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. And that's one of those tips that uh, newer people would love, I think would really benefit to hear, right? When they're out on their first long ride and they're like, ooh, my 
my feet really hurt. Is this a sign? Like, is this really bad? Like, am I hurting myself or is this normal? Right. Yeah. Part of it's switching feet also that, that like lets them rest. And I think the blood pulls up in your foot and stuff. Cause Mitch Pesquale, the guy who did 285, I think he did 285 with one foot. His, uh, he, his one foot really swole up and hurt the whole time. So, yeah, yeah. I could see that happening. And like the 24 hours just compounds all these things. You have one little small ailment. It's going to turn into a big one. One year, this happens to my brother and I, uh, our big toe, one of our, one of our big toes, not both of them usually will get like just black, like the nail, you know, there's like gets bruised underneath, right. And the blood, there's like dried blood or some shit. Right. And the nail just has to die off. It takes about a year for it to like oh go God. back to normal. So you're at the next ultra skate. You're like, hope it doesn't happen again because I just got a new nail, you know? <laughs> yeah. The funny thing about being like at a higher level is it's weird because like, yeah, you, you get all those injuries when you're going 24 hours. But then for me, I don't know what happened, but like I'm like ready to skate like three days after ultra now. Uh-huh. I yeah. don't know what's like. I got no blisters. I got no pains. People always message me and they're like, dude, are cyclists and they're like, that's unhealthy. And I'm like, look, man, I used to do biking and that was way worse. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, unhealthy, right? Like, like who's to say, right? Like, you, they're talking about the actual 24 hours unhealthy or the fact that you're here. Yeah, the so 24 fast. hours. But yeah. I'm like, uh, I mean, to be fair, I think that is. I bet Ultra's taking a year off my life at this point. <laughs> I don't know. Like, who's to say? You know, I like mean, compared to heart heart disease, maybe not actually. But and and you know, like yeah, like what? I don't know, man. Like, not to get too dark, but like you could die any day. You know what I mean? Like, who's to say what's gonna kill you? Right? Like, take a year off your life. It could have also given you a year if you were doing something else. Right? Like, we got to do something with our time, and everything's gonna <laughs> slightly deteriorate your body in some way maybe not though maybe we're invincible yeah and as bad as we make it sound i think like uh you need the social interaction too like seeing all these people is kind of what gives you the energy to keep on training and keep on staying healthy yeah yeah guys the only way to make friends is to ride 24 hours on skateboard i don't know if you it's know a that. great place to make friends because it's one of the it is 100%. the only race you can talk and chat and potentially stop if you want to yeah yeah and that's that's the best thing about ultra is it's like a party where people are riding a skateboard riding their skateboards around in a circle you know like that's that's it yeah i'd like to take it chill one year eventually we say that but. we say that and then it's like I, I could just sign up for a solo right like i mean you've you've done some good you've done some pretty impressive shit right so i wouldn't knock you for taking a year off um but whenever i think about it i'm like well i still want to push a certain mileage, right? Like I still, I'm not done doing solo. So I'm going to, it's like you only get one ultra, one Miami ultra skate a year. You get multiple ultra skates a year if you, if you can, right? You only get so many opportunities. So it's hard to just turn it down completely. Yeah. People are always like, Hey man, you could totally just like stay at my place if you fly to the Netherlands. And I'm like, dude, I can't like, I can't. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't have the, I don't have the money. I don't have the vacation. I don't care if like I can do everything else for free. It's just like flying to Miami is cheap and it's really easy to justify because it's in the middle of the winter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I would love to go to Dutch. I haven't been. I think I'm, I'm going to try and go 2024, but we'll see. 
I got to save up and then find the vacation, but I would love to go there. Yeah. Make like a Euro trip out of it. Do a bunch of things. Yeah, go to Europe, see what it's like. Mm -hmm. I would love that. It just seems like a lot safer place to be a skater. (laughs) Yeah. And we talked about how you have trails where you live, but that's pretty uncommon in the US and Europe. And I still love skating in traffic because like we have that whole downtown area. So, and like, you know, the, the cars are slower because it's a busy downtown. Skating and it's traffic. Like, skating with, with traffic is just like, you know, I'm on my commute. Uh, I, I'm like, okay, I'm going to take the downtown route because that's the fastest way anyway. And I love skating, skating around traffic. It's just like, it's not something I could advise for people to do, but it's just so fun. It's like a vice. So let me ask you, you did Broadway Bomb. After doing that, did that instill more confidence in you to skate around cars? Oh, uh, you know, I was already ready for it. Like you were ready for it. I, you know, like as someone who's like used to downhilling around cars in Asheville, when I'd like commute downtown, you know, like you go like 30 miles per hour and you're commuting without any gloves downtown Asheville. Cause like I got to ride down the mountain and into town and then around downtown with the traffic. It's just like, I don't know, New York isn't really that bad traffic-wise. Traffic's slow. No, that's a great <laughs> point. Like, uh, it looks super scary. Like, you have a great video on Broadway Bomb, so people should check that out. And the footage is is scary to watch sometimes. It's like, ooh, he's going to hit the car, you know? Like, um, But it, part of it is the is the camera. And yeah, exactly. part of it like, is like when you're you're like standing, right? You're, you're only like an inch off the ground, and you're moving just as fast as, as the car's it's a lot more predictable. You can be like, if like worst case right now in this very moment, I jump on this car, you know what I mean? And it, yeah, the car exactly. is probably going like, to stop. Like, then we're okay. The worst thing that could really happen is a car hit you. But I think the worst thing that realistically will happen if you're comfortable on a board and you're not the type of person who falls down, I don't want to say I don't fall down, but I don't fall down really. Is that like you can run it off because in New York, you're not really ever going that fast. No, it's valid. Even if you're going like, 17 18 miles per hour you know like by the time you see a car slow down a little bit and then you're good to go your board might get destroyed but new york isn't that dangerous it's just like you could get like a minor injury and that would be something that screw up my training so i'm trying to figure out if i really want to race broadway bomb this year or wait a little bit since i'm going all in on ultra skate this year oh okay i was gonna ask you about broadway bomb um i might try and go down it's not too hard for me to get there and the city is really fun to go to. So 17, 18 miles an hour, like you were saying, I think that's pretty fast, right? And like this whole idea you proposed of like falling while you're in traffic is, is super scary. But the cool thing about that I've noticed, and maybe you've noticed this too, is like when you're riding around New York, the cars notice you a lot more than like other places, right? And they're less likely to try and cut you off because they know what you're doing. They're like, this person some crazy dude on a skateboard. I've seen hundreds of them today. You know what I mean? Like very common thing. And you're almost given the right of way. It's, it's kind of nice. Yeah. I mean, with the advent of like bike delivery and all these other things, it's become better and better too. Yeah. It's just like people know if they're driving, especially in Manhattan that like they probably shouldn't be driving there and they're like scared or lost or, or they're experienced there. So it's not, it's the only place in the United States I'd actually be really comfortable riding in traffic with no worries. Hmm. That's a really good point about the whole bike delivery and everything. I wonder if some of these 
cities, these big like American cities that are known for just having the worst traffic. Like you say, why are you driving in New York City? Like, just don't do it. Anyone who's yeah. thinking about doing it, don't do it. Like at that point, maybe we just should shut down the streets. You know what I mean? Like maybe they just shouldn't exist. Like, Which is what they did where I live. Actually, we have like completely close to that are only bikes and pedestrians through nice. the downtown. That's and perfect. That's actually one of the roads I ride a lot. And it's like, it's great. And I think uh, part of that's like all the infrastructure thing with America. And, and the, I don't know if the Europeans quite get how bad trying to ride in the United States is. But since we had time to develop our cities in a way that cars were always around, mm-hmm. only like a couple cities that were designed before cars are really, are really rideable. Everything else is streamlined so cars can go 45 in the middle of a downtown area. Yeah. Like Chicago, because Chicago burned down and then they rebuilt it for cars. Exactly. But New York is like here to stay. And Washington, D.C. is like, oh, they got cars, but I mean, a little yeah. bit better. Like all these cities have been built over like on top of their old selves, right? I, I wonder if they're just going to do it again and be like, yeah, scrap this one. We're going to make this oh, it's about gotta burn the bikes. down now. Oh, no. No, yeah. So where, where are we? <laughs> we were talking about Ultra Skate. We do. Okay, so we were talking about Ultra Skate. One we of the things... We see yeah. often at Ultra Skate, right, are big wheels. Now, you have a philosophy about big wheels that maybe you'd like to share. Sort of like what is, we could talk sort of like what is the ideal wheel size, right? And like how big is too big? To get up to speed is going to take effort, right? Yeah, I like to think of it like big wheels, wheel size is a lot like your gears on your bike. Okay. Uh, you know, like smaller wheels get up to speed faster, like a smaller chain ring on a bike, you know, but then like track cyclists have a gigantic chain ring, which means your gear ratio is higher and big wheels are kind of similar. They're heavier, they're harder to get up to speed, but they hold momentum and they roll over things better. Just like that's a fact they roll over things better, Yeah. but there's other aspects that makes them worse. But in general, I do like wheel choice in that sort of manner. And for me, I think... Me and Titus and Kiefer Dixon, those types of people, we have like short, powerful legs. Mm -hmm. So pushing a huge wheel is really no issue for us. Acceleration, it does feel a little bit harder. Interesting. But like, I don't mind it. And 90% of the time you're at your full speed or trying to get there. So it's like, people are like, "I, I can't accelerate that big wheel. But for me, it's like, I'm accelerating to a top speed. And it's all about holding that top speed when I'm in a race. Yeah. Unless I'm stopping every three seconds. For me, a big wheel just makes more sense if I'm straight line speeding it. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's super cool, right? Like this whole idea of small wheel accelerates faster, big wheel accelerates slower. Like that makes sense. And then you mentioned the big wheels roll over stuff easier, which again, really simple concept, easy to understand. But like for a skateboard, at what point is the wheel at that sweet spot, right? Like it's hard to know where it's like, oh, this is gonna roll over most things and it's gonna hold 12.5 miles an hour really nicely or something like that. I need a bigger wheel to hold 13.5. It's, it'd be, I'd be curious to know, like, have you done any sort of personal research in that area of what what is the optimal wheel for a certain speed? That's like kind of a mystery to me in a way that I've researched it a lot and I've done testing with stuff. and I'm trying to set up a rig with a treadmill and a force sensor and a sledge, the old <laughs> wheels and test them, which I'm working on. And then I'm going to put like different 
grit, sandpaper on it nice. to get a representative idea, at least. Maybe it's not perfectly representative. But yeah, it's like it's impossible to tell what the best size wheel is when you have to account for other things like weight and grip, which are all important. And also, like I guess something to mention is not only is it hard to get a heavier wheel to speed, but it changes the way your form works. Because like for me, I'm not just pushing with one foot, I'm lunging with the other. I have kind of like a one in the give and take. I push one forward, one foot forward, and then I push the pushing ground foot backwards, and then I get a little bit more momentum out of it. And when you have a heavier wheel, it impacts the speed you can do that at because it doesn't want to accelerate under you as easily. So like it's possible that big wheels actually do take more out of you than you think, even in like a distance thing, depending on your pushing form. It's all very like style dependent. So you're saying like every push you take, you're essentially trying to accelerate the wheel faster. So if it's bigger, that's going to be harder to do. So technically, every push you take might be taking more out of you than it's worth. Yeah, not only getting up to speed, but the acceleration, like from a literal sense, you have like a one second acceleration where you're just lunging the board a little bit. And that could be impacting you. It's kind of hard to measure that sort of thing. And it depends on your form. Right. Too. This is a tricky thing about skateboards. You know, with a bike, you're just pedaling. It's it's a mechanism that you're working. So it's like, okay, the mechanism is what drives the power. Or you, you're driving the mechanism. The mechanism is what dictates sort of like the power. Whereas with the skateboard, it's like, it's you pushing down on the ground. And then as you mentioned, you have this board foot that also pushes the board forward, you know, like, and that's one hit. And then you have to bring it back. And then you have another hit. Whereas with the bike, it's like repetitive motion. It's like boom, 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 you know, even with running a little more rhythmic where it's like one, then the other, one, then the other. With a skateboard, it's it's so tricky because your cadence of push is going to change based on, you know, the incline, based on the terrain and all this. It's just hard to know exactly how much effort you're putting out. Like, is there a way to get like a power meter on a skateboard? I wonder that that would be so cool. There is. Um, I just haven't bothered setting it up, but there is. <laughs> How would you do that? There, they have these things called the power dot and other things you use. I've used in cycling, and that you can use them to calculate your aerodynamic drag and stuff. But the power dot can also calculate real time power through like estimating things. Essentially, what it does it est- it it measures your wind resistance, uh, the incline you're at, the vibration in the road, the calculated rolling resistance, the wind resistance, and everything else. And that can be used, and your speed, and that can be used to calculate the exact power you're inputting at that second. And it works like every millisecond. And I have one of those for a bike, and I talked to the company, and you could set it up on a longboard theoretically. But it's just like, I don't really need that in my life because it's like, (laughs) I don't need to be looking at those numbers per se. I mean, maybe it'd be cool, but I just don't feel like it's worth my effort. (laughs) That sounds fun. I I think knowing the the power would be kind of cool. It's as still is not you, perfect. Yeah, as far as what you do with that information, even like I don't really know. It's just kind of fun. Another fun. Yeah, I don't want to like go through the time of setting that up and then have it like, oh, actually the vibration's too high and it doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, and that's just it, right? Like you understand the investment there is not just try the thing and see if it works. It's more like. When it doesn't work, what do I do with all the time I just spent? Yeah, like I love messing with setups, but also like sometimes they take up way too much of my time. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So like, because I mess with setups every day, I feel like, and then it just screws my time over. Uh, Yeah, so like the big wheels, I think, have been a really cool progression, but 
it's still like a little un, you know, like it's hard for me to recommend it for everyone. So you were riding the InGens, the Hyperdrive 100 millimeter. Are you still using? Oh, well, there's another wheel in town we can talk about, but you still like those? Those uh, for like a, a big wheel to recommend. So another thing is like testing wheels. Um, you can't really trust the durometer of most wheels. It turns out. Sure. So these hyperdrives are 100 millimeters. They say 74A, but really they're like 71 and a half A when you measure them. And I do really like them, but that's also because most of the riding I do is on like bad pavement. Like I have those bike paths, which are really nice. Mm -hmm. But then most of my commuting going through downtown and stuff is like the worst potholes you've ever seen. Like I have potholes that could swallow a hundred millimeter wheels. And if I just hit them fast enough, it's not an issue. Nice. So like <laughs> going through cracks every three seconds, it's like the softer wheels exponentially more important than having a rolling speed wheel. So like, I don't know if the hyperdrive engines for everyone, but it is a really soft wheel that does well at things like Latiga where there's a lot of like ugly concrete. Yeah. Consistently ugly or I like what you said about the sidewalk. Sidewalks are awesome for bikes, but for skateboards, it's like, oh no, you know, I was just out in Colorado and I feel like a lot of their trails are those big sidewalk chunks, which again, as a bike, yeah. you don't really care, but any little fluctuation between them on a skateboard, you're going to feel. Yeah. So like with a 71A, a hundred millimeter wheel, you like barely feel it. Yeah. Yeah. That's which fair. is a huge difference because then you can balance and then you can push easier. And that's more important at the end of the day than like 2% gains. Right, right. Which would be like, say, a harder wheel might run faster, but every impact is going to put you off balance. And that's part of the reason I run softer wheels at Ultraskate, even though Ultraskate is 50% nice and 50% bad pavement wise. It's just like, when it's the bad part, I just get really pissed off at hour 20 that I'm getting pushed off balance by the bad pavement. Do you know anything about like, when a wheel has been spinning for that long, if it behaves differently, like if it heats up or takes on a certain form, because it's like such a soft material. It shouldn't be. Yeah, it shouldn't be an issue because like we're relatively low speed still, especially like an ultra skate. Maybe like if you're going downhill at 80, it definitely makes a difference. But but the time isn't a factor there. It's just sp speed would be more of a factor. Yeah, yeah. Maybe temperature would make a slight difference because, you know, the pavement more sure. than the rolling. Yeah, But if you're pumping really hard, it puts some heat into the wheels. Interesting. What about like bearings? Do you know anything about that? Yeah, I've done some math about bearings, not because I'm researching them, because I was just curious how many revolutions, how fast they're going, and bearings are fine. Uh, <laughs> bearings are really like over-engineered for skating in terms of rotating, maybe not in side loads, but mm -hmm. they're great. Do you think, like as far as cleaning bearings goes... There's a certain point where they do get gummed up, right? Would you recommend oh, cleaning yeah. them or would you just... For me, it's just like, when you clean them out, you don't get everything out. And sometimes the races are still worn out. And for me, if you're sliding and stuff, really you wear out the races. And then your bearings rattle because they don't fit as well. The tolerances go away. <laughs> and that's just like an inevitable thing with all bearings. Yeah. Eventually they start rattling. And then, then I'm like, well, I don't, I'm not going to bother to clean this out. It'll just be a rain set. And then I buy a new set. Yeah. So sliding kind of like creates some sort of torque on the wheel, right? Because it's shredding the wheel. So I imagine it does something to yeah. the bearing. It's surprisingly a lot of force. But yeah, like uh, it's like with radial bearings that we use, they're really not meant for side loads like sliding. Gotcha. So the reality is they, they just wear out. Mm -hmm. Eventually they wear out. The, the races wear out, maybe not the balls as much. And then you have a looser bearing, which rattles and like, well, whatever. <laughs> 
I remember for a while, everyone was just like constantly cleaning them. And I, I still like to because out here we get a lot of salt in the roads. So, yeah, so if I'm like, yeah, you know, you know, so if I'm like training in the winter when they're really good at plowing and like getting the roads dry so I can skate when there's snow on the ground, but there's salt on the road. So then, you know, cleaning out the bearings is kind of helpful. I have like my winter set up and I just have like a sink in the basement and I just come in to the basement, spray that shit with WD-40 and call it. <laughs> I just spin the wheel and spray it a little bit WD-40 to get the water out of it. And then at least that way it doesn't completely seize up. But when I ride to work, if it's snowy and icy, by the time it's time to go home, the bearings are so seized that I can barely move them. And then sometimes I'm like, uh oh, but yeah. maybe I need to, maybe be like Hank Hill from, from uh, yeah, Hank Hill, and have some WD forty <laughs> on my belt. Yeah, I'm king of the hell. I do. Um, you ever hear of a citrus degreaser? You know what that is? Yeah, I have some of that. I use that on. Uh, on bearings i just swill them around will my brother made these really cool like it's it's a bottle it's a glass bottle with a giant bolt that goes runs through the whole thing so you slide the bearings onto that bolt the bolt is connected to the cap of the bottle it's like an old kombucha oh bottle. yeah you just screw it Kinda on like those like name brand ones from bones i think so i think he might have emulated something maybe uh, so I have one of those and I just kind of swill it around and dry them off and put them back on. Usually cleans out a lot of that stuff. Yeah. For me, it's like getting the races off is the worst part because I don't want to bend the races because then it screws up the bearing and that's like the best way they get the gunk out of it. And I'm like, well, whatever. I'm just going to flush it out with WD-40 and call it a day because it's not mm -hmm. my race setup. <laughs> yeah. That's just it, right? Once you pop those shields off, you call them races? Is that what they're called? Like oh, no, no. Yeah, the, the bearing shields. That's probably just misthinking. Yeah, once you pop the bearing shields off, if you just like bend them a little bit, then they're screwed. So Yeah. Even if you like trying to get them back on, it's unlikely you won't bend them, you know, like, so they usually yeah. kind of don't go on right. Or you like you make a little hole in the seal that doesn't like that lets stuff in more. And it's just yeah. like. I've like tried to match them up, be like, oh, this shield belongs to this bearing. And then I go back and try and put them back and it still doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah. I remember as a kid growing up when watching like how to set up your skateboard videos. I think it was I think it was Bam Margera doing like a how to set up your <laughs> skateboard video. He was like, and then you want to make sure you pop the shields off because we don't want those or whatever. You know, it was just some edgy thing to do. It's like, oh, that's a nice way to just gum up your bearings. <laughs> just take the shields right off, you know? It's like, a, it's like it lets... It lets dirt in, but also lets dirt out if you're never going to maintain them. Yeah. So I guess that's the street skater mindset, especially since they're riding over all sorts of crap in parks. There's so much dust. Right. And he was even saying, he's like, it helps them run faster, which he might have been right. Because as we just said, the shield sometimes screws up the bearing. So like, who knows? <laughs> Maybe he was onto something. Yeah. I want some of those Bronson shieldless bearings. They're so cool looking. I have not seen those. That sounds nice. Yeah, they have them. They're like... No shields. These are the coolest bearings ever. The cages <laughs> are holding the, the balls in are like orange. Looks super cool. That's neat. I love orange. <laughs> orange is good. Very, very common longboarding color, obviously. Yeah, man. <laughs> We're talking about wheels. Let's talk about this new exciting stuff coming out. Uh, it's already been posted on Instagram at this point, so we can talk about it. The uh, new Pantheon wheel, it's called the Karma 92 millimeter. What's the durometer? I don't know. 
off the top of my head. 74A. 74A. Oh, a real 74A. <laughs> and you worked with Jeff on this? Yeah, Jeff was uh Jeff was looking to make a wheel, right? Because like he had wheels in the past and that fell through. There were some disagreements. And you know, the obvious thing as a manufacturer, everyone needs it, is like sell your own wheels because then you don't have to be the middleman. Then you can survive as a company. And mm-hmm. like I, I don't know how like Jeff is like a boutique longboard guy, right? He makes the best longboards. He doesn't sell a lot of them. So like the guy's not making a huge amount of money. He's doing it because he loves it mm-hmm. and he needs the, he needs some wheels. But then Jeff was like talking to me and I was like, Hey man, so why don't we make good wheels though? Like not like, not like those Zenit 100 millimeters where they're just another relabeled like mids AliExpress uh, flywheel copy. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Because like people like Titus, he breaks cores of wheels of cheap wheels. So like Titus would break something like that. And, you know, when you get to a higher level, you want grip. And that's the big issue with big wheels is like, I'm always in search of a big wheel that doesn't have crappy grip. Hmm. And it's not just grip. Like you can have grip, but then you can have grip release where the wheel releases the grip predictably. And if you want to get on the edge of your pump or go downhill predictable, you don't want to just all of a sudden lose traction. Sure. Just something I found with those like a hundred millimeter flywheel copies or those 85 like, millimeter or 90 millimeter hurricanes all those random like sort of things so i was like jeff we should we could just design a new wheel and he's like yeah i mean the manufacturer is down for it so i was like all right i'm not gonna let you make a bad wheel Mm -hmm. we got to really think about this so that was kind of how it started and then i was like all right jeff here's my pitch and i sent jeff like a hundred slide PowerPoint. Wow. I had everything I could find on literature on like urethane roller and urethane wheel design. <laughs> I and like I was like, look, that. man, we can make something that doesn't, that isn't like just another ordinary stock wheel because that's like the thing with bikes and everything. When you get a complete, usually on a bicycle, on a longboard, the wheels are kind of the afterthought. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's where that started. And then we kind of delved into like, basically optimizing this wheel with the idea that it needs the fit a pantheon setup like i think we want to make other wheels in the future but the first thing we needed to do obviously is make a wheel that fits all the pantheon setups and then there is where we worked from the design the wheel that works as well as possible given all the things we wanted Mm -hmm. but it has to have these certain like clearance on the inside edge stuff like that and we wanted to be as big as possible to still have clearance to fit stuff like the trip and all these drop through boards. That's so cool. I love how his setups are so dialed in like that. Like this will fit these trucks on these wheels. And you know, you can't, you can't prepare for every single setup someone's going to do, right? Like there's so many different variations, right? If someone wants to throw like a really fat contact patch wheel on your your set you know whatever like you just can't really prepare for that you're gonna have to let them figure it out and like let them figure out how it's not gonna get wheel bite or whatever but i love how he's like taking convention like you know easy to get parts right like the bear trucks and stuff like that and making them compatible with his his stuff yeah the way i always put it is like people are like god dang that's a lot of money for a longboard but i'm like in every sport in every hobby there's like something to aspire to. Like we love gear. People love things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's like, usually you have to aspire to like, dang, I would love to own a Ferrari or I would love to own 
um, that $14,000 S-Works bicycle. Right. Or, you know, it's, or I'd love to own those $350 Nike marathon running shoes. So like when you look at something like a Pantheon complete, you're like, okay, this is the hobby. This is the thing I care about. And I could have the best thing and it's within reach mm-hmm. and it will last a lot longer than something ridiculous like Nike Vaporfly marathon shoes. <laughs> yeah. 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 The board does last a really long time, you know, especially if you take care of it. Yeah. So like Jeff's, like Jeff's outlook, you're like, oh, I could buy a completely stock board now that the best people are racing. Yeah. Yeah. And you can pump on it too. Yeah. That's the goal. Like being able to <laughs> pump a set, like a stock setup. That's pretty cool. You know, like that wasn't always a thing. Like, it, I feel like even dialing in, well, dialing in a setup, right? A, especially a pump setup is like something you have to learn how to do for one. Yeah. Yeah. Like Jeff gives you a great head start. Exactly. Some of the stuff is esoteric, but like, I don't know. Like when I started riding, I wanted lower degree rears because I was doing a lot of downhill and I needed some more stiffness and durability in my boards because you're riding in the rain. And or- originally Pantheon was all wood. And I had the mod everything. I'd like car- carbon fiber and foam core my decks and stuff and do all this stuff to my Pantheons. Uh-huh. But now like they're fiberglass, they're made with waterproof epoxy. So like it's inherently waterproof without needing any sort of like protection. It's like soaked in waterproof material. Yeah. So like now the Pantheons are more expensive per se, but like I literally have been riding a stock seven ply and I'm like, I could race this for everything. And then maybe a six ply with bigger wheels stock for ultra skate. <laughs> and you, you like the supersonic pretty, pretty good. Seemed yeah. To. I like it a lot. Um, maybe if I was doing more downhill, I'd stay with the trip again just cause I have like a little stiffer, better concave, but I just love the supersonic cause you can run narrow trucks and risers means you can adjust it really easily. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The top mount is pretty cool. And, and just having those options built into the setup, like it's already angled for you. You don't have to wedge it if you don't want to kind of thing. It's pretty cool. When you ride the trip, you just ride the, uh, the drop through setup, not like chopped or anything. Two trip setups. Like I was in Calgary with Paul and I was doing riding with him for a little while. And it was just like, yeah, just like a typical 50, 50 trip. Uh, the, the rear end's kind of lively, which can be sketchy at higher speeds. And then yeah. I also have a zero 55 trip and that's kind of like my downhill guy, or maybe I'll do like 50, or 30 or something and i have a randall base plate but like yeah so i'll set up something like that with the drop through so on that you're just going straight downhill you're not doing any switch right the um, 55 yeah zero. yeah so like i mean people would be like yeah you should do switch but like the reality is if i'm riding in the mountains every day back when i lived in Asheville, like i don't want to fall Mm-hmm. So I'm doing gloves down if i want to slide so right. it's like if i'm gloves down then i don't need to go switch because like you know, sometimes if you do a stand-up slide, well, first of all, you never know. Like stand-up slide, there's always that 3% chance you're just going to eat crap, mm-hmm. which is a bad chance every day. But like, yeah, if I have gloves down, then I can always do some sort of pendulum slide mm-hmm. where it's like come back facing the same direction. <laughs> so yeah. then I have those directional setups anyway. And they're more stable. Did you do any like sliding when you were at Ladiga this past year? Did you have to do any of that on any of the crazy... Little downhill sections. You know, I'm like, would never consider it. Paul could do it because Paul's like, you know, he's a legit downhill racer. Mm-hmm. I can do downhill. I did it every day, but it's not something like where I'm like, I'm not at the Paul level where I'm risking my limbs. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, a, 
I could do any downhill, but I'm going to do it to survive. I'm mm-hmm. not going to try like dropping a standy when my heart rate's at 180. It's just like a, a necessary risk in the middle of the nowhere in Georgia. Yeah, I've heard some stories about what Paul used to do back then, how he would just like rip the the chicane. There's this one section at Ladiga for people who don't know where it's just downhill, round a corner, down another hill. You really have to foot break it pretty hard. Like it's not, it's kind of sketchy. And I'm pretty sure Paul just bolted yeah. on through. Yeah, like I know Jeff tried to just do it and he hurt himself really badly. Right. And I went, I was taking it safe this year because I was like, I don't, I don't really remember this place. And I think I could have gone a lot faster down it, but it's like, uh, in a push race, you don't really need to risk it on a downhill like that unless it was a shorter push race and it mattered. Right. You, you ditched everyone at the, the hill section this year. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, my specialty was for a while was pushing uphill mm-hmm. and it was like, okay, you get to this 10% gradient and people start running and I'm like, that's ridiculous. I can push up at like 12 miles per hour up that hill. <laughs> so like, I was like, whatever, uh, I guess this, I'm just going solo the whole race. Cause I don't really want to wait for people. Yeah. 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 <laughs> That's like 13 miles into the 56. So it's most of the race you're by yourself at that point. I think that's a fun, fun point. You know, a little bit of a call out there. People do run up hills at Ladiga sometimes. It does happen even in the front pack. Um, but not Adam, you know, cause Adam can <laughs> push 12 miles per hour up the hill. I think when I start, when I would start running is right around 15 to 20%. Cause I have some of these okay. downhills where you like, you know, you just do stand up slides and you go back up and some of those you feel like, okay, it would be faster running. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, there's like two of the two, two or three areas I can think of at Ladiga that are really steep like that, but they don't last long. So it's almost like, yeah, you, you had can momentum speed. through it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, that's fun. Yeah, that's a great place to to make a make an attack and drop the rest of the pack there, I think. Going through those hills cuz once you get up and you're kind of like away from them, you just bomb the hill and you know, extend the lead as much as you can, I guess. Yeah, Paul is like you need to save someone that uses a draft mule so you work less. Mm-hmm. And maybe he was right, but also like I don't know. oh no it's great advice right but it's also one of those things where it's like nobody knows what's actually going to happen at the at the event and like there's a chance paul would have done the same thing you did even knowing he should probably bring someone right but it's like you know when when the time comes and like you have an opportunity right you ended up winning the day by quite a bit so it clearly worked for you like yeah i mean i was just thinking about the overall time too it's just like yeah if I ever find myself waiting, I'm like, maybe I should just go for it. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And you got that overall time. That was exciting. That was an exciting. Good day. time. Yeah. Yeah. That day three, you had, um, you had some cyclists kind of like egging you on. It seemed like just like, not like egging you on, like just right next to you. Yeah. I met this nice guy and he rode with me. He's like, come on, man you gotta go faster. And, <laughs> and he's like, here, let me stop traffic for you. At the inter- well, he didn't stop traffic for me at the intersections, but he was like, here, let me go tell you if it's clear. Wow. So he'd go ahead and wave me on. And that makes a big difference going through the intersections. Cause this whole race I've been riding kind of relaxed. I mean, I'm like, I'm, I didn't think I had a chance at it. And then the last day I'm like, Ooh, I kind of do have a chance at the record. 
And I was like, well, I should have been blowing the intersections more because slowing and stopping is really one of the biggest things. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, this guy comes around and it's like, here, man, let me talk to you. Keep it out of your head. Uh, I'll ride with you and stop. tell you when the traffic's coming. That was like a big deal. Huge, yeah. The The traffic is really, really helpful because then you're just, you know, there's no sort of like cut to your speed at all. It's really fun. Yeah, and like that makes a huge difference stopping and going. So mm-hmm. especially when you get in the busy part and you're getting towards Atlanta, there's cars coming all the time. Yeah. So back to the the wheels, do you think they would be good at something like the Diga? Like, is that like kind of what the idea is that they're sort of like this all around LDP wheel? You could probably slide with it, take it downhill, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, the idea of the Karmas was like uh, you know, first of all, we have to have clearance. Second of all, let's make it really lightweight because the problem with big wheels pumping is like the back and forth motion is another acceleration that just doesn't work with big wheels very well. Right. Like, okay. Big wheels feel slow. It's just like surf skates. You feel the difference between 60 and 70 millimeters pumping. You definitely feel the hundred millimeters if you're trying to pump it. So it's like, how do we reduce weight? So we wanted to make something where like Ladiga, actually there's not much turning, but there is pumping. So it'd be good if you want to pump, but we want to make something that's like lively and fun to ride around the city too. Mm-hmm. The idea behind it is like, we're making a grippy, fast accelerating wheel. It'd be great for like Broadway bomb. I think I'll race. I think I'd race it at Broadway bomb if I do it. And even in like a marathon, I'm fine with it. Nice. Maybe like for a hundred miles, I'd go for big trucks just cause I'm rolling. Sure. Big, like not big truck and wheels, not big trucks, but Sure, yeah, yeah. Um, that's what you mean. Yeah. And then, so the Karmas are just designed to be as lightweight as possible while still having grip, essentially. Like, predictable, good grip. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we want them to be comfortable. So, I guess I'll talk about the design process of it. It was like, we have this specification of it needs to be 92 millimeters to fit all of the setups. Okay. And then I was like, okay, let's look into urethane deflection optimization where... There's a certain amount of deflection you can get. On, like, so a urethane is like a spring. The whole thing compresses when you compress it. If you go above a certain percentage, there's a curve you can see of optimizing how much energy it loses. And it's kind of exponential. So I set a goal where we want to keep it before it gets exponential and like the, the losses you have rolling in urethane. Okay. So we have our total sprung area where like your urethane from the core to the outer edge of the wheel compresses. And then you also have another thing called like just the, so that's like the percent deflection. And then you have the total deflection, which is like how much the wheel compresses in millimeters. So it's like, that's like your travel. A comfortable wheel travels a certain amount in millimeters every time you hit a bump. So you have like, so I I tested all these wheels and found like calculated, you can create a model of it like, how 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 a wheel's gonna feel from the lip size, the core size, the thane depth, the durometer of the urethane. And you can get a very good calculation of how comfortable it is and how much it deflects. So I made an entire chart of every wheel we could have in the industry, how it feels, and then the efficiency of it. Then I was like, okay, we don't want to make this wheel feel too soft and we don't want to make it feel too hard. So I use this, like essentially you can design the thane depth though, so it doesn't flex enough to become inefficient from like that that cutoff point i have Mm -hmm. and then you also want a certain amount of deflection 
which means you got to adjust the contact patch size and the durometer to get the wheel to compress the way you want it. So it feels a certain level of comfortableness in that total travel. So then we designed the core and the patch, and mostly the core, to have the perfect urethane depth where we can have still an efficient wheel and still have it comfortable, but have the core be as large as possible. And it's really not terribly different than the seismic megawatt numbers-wise. Like when you look at the numbers, like seismic, I don't know if they calculated it, but like they're pretty spot on too. Um, but for Jeff and I, we did some a little bit more adjustments and stuff. So like I had a curve that's like, you have this curve of contact patch, uh, durometer, all these different things. And then I tried to align them all so that way we can have everything. We can have pretty light. We can have pretty mm-hmm. good good rolling resistance. And then we can have pretty good comfort. Gotcha. So like basically the wheel was designed from the ground up to be as light as possible while still being comfortable while not losing too much energy. And then from there we designed the lips to just to make sure they grip well and are predictable sliding and stuff. Okay. And I wouldn't say predictable sliding, but they're more like a, you know, we want good grip that doesn't give away instantly. Maybe it's not a free ride, free ride wheel in that sort of sense, but mm-hmm. like it's a it's a good grippy wheel. Cool. So yeah, it sounds you you have this concept, right? You have a ninety-two millimeter wheel. That was sort of your outer bound, right? And you're like, okay, it has to be light. Best way to make it light is to make the core pretty big, right? Ideally, yeah, right? And adjust like, the contact patch. Yeah, yeah, and then yeah, okay, so you adjust the contact patch, which makes for those who may not be super familiar, that's like making the wheel thinner when you like look down at it, essentially. Um, and then you have this other concept, right, of like the wheel compresses a certain amount based on the type of urethane and the durometer. Is that correct? Yeah, mostly the durometer, honestly. Okay. Um, and then that, based on like all that research you did, you sort of found the sweet spot between all these factors. And that's, at the end, you said sort of like, the lips are designed a certain way to, to catch and release the grip. Yeah, exactly. And I have like this chart of durometer versus all these sizes. And we're like, well, for a durability sake, we don't want to go lower than a certain amount. So then you adjust everything. So the durometer matches up really well with the rolling resistance and the durability that you would want. Wow. And using that, you could like use these curves to figure out, you know, on paper, how you'd want to do wheels. And you could adjust other aspects to make it fit the core and stuff well. But for this one, the core is designed perfectly so that way the wheel's lightweight but still has a lot of like comfort and grip to it. That's so neat. You like devised a whole system for developing wheels. That's super cool. Well, like the thing is, it's it's a lot like that jazz thing I said earlier where it's like you got to know the rules before you break them. Yeah. Cool. Um, you know, like there's a lot of conventions with wheels and they're all, they're, they're all there for some reasons and maybe they don't have exactly the right idea behind them, but like good wheels are good wheels for a reason. So like, it's not a, it's not like groundbreakingly different, but it's like fine tuning it as much as possible. So like, you know, I feel bad because it's like seismic just released this 90 millimeter wheel and Jeff doesn't have anything against seismic. We love seismic. Mm-hmm. Seismic's like, they're like the wheel guys yeah. for LDP and they have been for a long time. But Jeff's like, I need to make money. I need to make a cool wheel. And I'm like, well, this is just like how we can do it numbers wise to be perfect. And it's honestly pretty close to the seismics. Like, but we got some edge on it in some ways that we wanted and it performs exactly how we want. And I'm really happy about it. Mm-hmm. 
And I think someday we'd like to do just like a no constraints at all, just design a really sick wheel how I want it. Ooh. <laughs> like maybe like, but that that's really like a financial thing. Wheels cost so much to make. That's the other thing. It's really cool that Jeff let me get on get in on this and work on CAD designs with him and like go really from the ground up designing the wheel. Like something we did is designing the chorus, like, hey man, this Nautilus pattern, we could proposing it with a little bump in it. So that way it could still hold Kegel cores for electric boards because it's like, you're going to want to keep the e-board market there. Mm -hmm. And it, technically it could, but we added one millimeter to the bearing seat because Titus kept breaking Kegel cores. <laughs> Titus. And we're like, I mean, Titus is kind of like hucking five stairs with Kegels. So it's like, well, I don't know if Titus is a great example of LDP people, but we're like, you know what? We're not going to settle. Like, let's just cut off the entire possibility of making revenue off the e-board market out of principle to make a solid wheel. Which is maybe financially not smart, but I think from an ethics standpoint, it's just like Jeff's always trying to make the best thing. Yeah, that's a great example of doing just that. It's so it's so tough though, right? Like missing out on, on that revenue for a, a company like Jeff's, as you said, like he's just making stuff. Like he's not some big company, right? Like yeah, the investment is insane. Like when you think about how much it costs, because you're like, how much could it cost to make a wheel? But when you make a wheel, you know, you, you don't have just one mold for one wheel. This is a factory. So you've got to CNC like 20 molds. And when you CNC something, it costs like, you know, aluminum something, but mm -hmm. these wheel molds are made out of steel. So like then you're doing 10 molds for wheels. CNC out of steel, 400 each. It, it like becomes $10,000, $15,000 just to make something new. Right. That's a so huge like, investment. Huge investment. Yeah. So like the fact that Jeff was like, yeah, let's let's make something new and not do something tried and true mm -hmm. is like, it is a big risk. That's why people use stuff that already exists. <laughs> right. Right. And that's why, this is why we're like, okay, we got to really like not just guess. Because like people like Seismic are awesome because they have so much industry experience and they have, I, I keep going back to them because they're really the only people who make like things from scratch. Sure. They have <laughs> so many different wheels too. It's really cool. Yeah. People like Seismic have a lot of experience and we're like, well, we got to, we got to make experience by, we, we know stuff about wheels, but we got to also like, let's be calculated and do everything as efficiently as possible. And it's fun because doing the lip dynamics, you can like model lip dynamics and stuff. And I'm like, I don't know if this groove does anything. Let's adjust it. And then I'll plug it in and model it more and more until we get like, all right, this is good. <laughs> and then that way we don't have to make another, oh, oops, let's make another thousand dollar mold. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you're just doing all this in uh, in like a CAD program. You said like just like 3D modeling on yeah, your computer. Yeah. Just, we use like, Jeff uses um, Fusion. I use Onshape because it's free. Okay. Stuff like that. And then like, I have experience with groundwater modeling and other stuff. So it's really not that hard for me to go into other programs because the end of the day, it's very similar mm -hmm. software wise. So, yeah, that's super neat. Utilizing all your skills. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Dude, do some skateboard science experiments. Yeah. I think there's a lot of stuff you could do with wheels. They're just a lot of voodoo. I mean, just testing all these wheels to come up with a chart to figure out how we wanted our wheels to feel. I was like, man, only seismic gets the durometer, right? Everyone's just like guessing this. 
Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a cool perspective. You know, like even you said though, like all durometers aren't created equal, like they can give it a rating all they want, but it comes down yeah. to what it actually is. Right. Like, I mean, I probably shouldn't get into like, I'm not shit talking, but so like BOA slash 88 Wheelco, mm-hmm. you know, for a while they're like, these McFlies are so comfortable. This is groundbreaking urethane. You test any McFly, like stock McFly, they're all 88. I mean, sorry, they're all 70A. Really? They say they're like in the mid ranges. Essentially, it's like we found out it's just like not true. Mm-hmm. Durometer makes a bigger difference than you'd think. All the all these McFlies are 70A. <laughs> and then like I was like, huh, let me look at this BOA 83, 83A 100 millimeter they're advertising. And the advertising material says, because it's like an e-board wheel, it's like durable, like an 83A wheel. Like an 83A. But rides like a 78A. And then I test it, and it's literally just 78A. Okay. <laughs> so they're saying it's 83A on the packaging, but it's just like, no, it literally is a 78A wheel. And that's how they say that it rides like a 78A it's wheel. It's weird. Yeah, weird that they wouldn't just say it's 78A. Like, Yeah, and then yeah, then like I test other wheels, and I'm like, oh, it's either urethane depth or the durometer's off. That's like the two things when they feel different. <laughs> One of the two. I was like cutting cores in half to measure the urethane depth and everything. Oh, that's so fun. You you straight up just saw them in half? Yeah, with the handsaw, it's the worst. It takes forever. I was going to say, that, know, that doesn't sound like the right way to do it. <laughs> I, if I had a bandsaw, I'd do it, but <laughs> okay. I don't have a bandsaw anymore. I thought maybe you uh, had a connection. to just. I used to have a <laughs> connection with hydraulic presses and all these tools, but now I don't. Now I live in Wisconsin, so. Okay. Yeah, because you were making like you were saying you made a post actually yesterday. I think it was like I used to have to mod all my stuff and make my own things. Now I don't have to anymore. And you were like making brackets, weren't you? Like machining like trucks yeah. and stuff together. What were you doing? Yeah, I was making brackets. I you know I'd buy aluminum because aluminum is really cheap actually, and then I just machine it in a way where I wouldn't create too large of bends for it to break unsafely. And I use that to make all my brackets because I wanted lower brackets for pushing on bigger wheels. Oh, these days I'm really not riding brackets as much. I I think they're nice still. Like on the Wiggler, I really enjoy them. But like the reality is that like especially for me, like wood is good because I like flex. Mm. <laughs> and wood is the more good. flex I can get. Yeah, like wood is just a great engineering material when you think about it. <laughs> And then when you add fiberglass, it's great. Yeah, and like this whole idea, like of the board being one piece, I think is is good too. Like the bracket is is awesome because it does do what it intends to do. But something about being like, um, I don't know, having that like connection to where the truck is mounted is it feels better to me on like the supersonic. Yeah, and like a lot of it is if you have brackets they really transmit the vibration in there because they reduce your flexing base by half and wood is a dampening material and a metal is not a dampening material oh you got all these things that like you know like you shorten the wheelbase by half essentially by introducing two stiff brackets and then you like have half the flex to absorb issues and half the dampening materials to absorb the uncomfortable pavement so 
there's a lot of reasons. Like brackets are great if you want a stiff pumper because like with those melon cack boards, mm-hmm. melonin cack boards, it's like those are stiffer pumping boards. So they make a lot of sense with brackets because you just want a nice stiff, slight flex for those pumping. But for me riding, I'm like more of a comfort guy. Um, I'm pushing. I'm primarily a pusher, not really a pumper. And I like having comfort. So I'm more of a wood all wood type of board guy, you know, wooden fiberglass. You can get pretty long wheelbases, right, with a bracket setup. But I guess what you're saying is it's still mounted on the board, right? Yeah, and the board exactly. itself is smaller, which uh, makes makes it more of a bumpy ride, essentially. Yeah, yeah. You just have less material that is flexing and absorbing bumps in the end of the day. And for me, the brackets are just more uncomfortable. And actually, like, per unit strength, wood is actually really strong. Sure. Yeah. It's like wood and fiberglass is very strong. It's hard to so break like, wood, especially along yeah. the grain or against the grain, right? Which is what you're, you'd have to do to break a skateboard. So. Yeah. So like it's a supersonic. It's like, it's probably the best way to be lightweight and also have flex. I don't, I can't see a world where brackets are better than the supersonic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, they are in some ways clearance wise, right. but like, um, if you want like just a really lightweight top mount pusher, like brackets aren't going to be better comfort wise or at least it's a great thing to have in your quiver, like get the bracket set up if you can. But, uh, I haven't touched mine since getting the supersonic. Like I don't really want to either. I've never really been able to dial in a really good pump setup on the bracket. I know you can, I just haven't been able to do it. And I don't love having a torsion tail rear especially around here we have rollers you know like i like to bomb the hills if i can and um you know i used to slide so much before i had the bracket uh just around town like we called it free push which i think some people have (laughs) used that phrase before too because there was so much like fun little areas just to like whip around like slide down this little section and then you go on your push and you find another little hill right and like Having you need a setup that can do yeah, it. Yeah, and it just doesn't work with brackets. Yeah, it does not work with the bracket. Kind of need like, to be able to spin you around. You can break them. I have uh, I have bent my double drop, my deep deep drop brackets. Have you? Them. Like they're they're crooked now. They're not supposed to slide. Yeah, that's the thing. Like they don't really. It's kind of this and thing like, you said with the wood and the metal. Like the metal, once it bends, it's kind of bent. With the wood, it it flexes back to this like. You know, it might warp, but you put pressure on it and it kind of settles. And also like just the hanging up factor is as someone who rides over very large potholes, like, you know, I say, you know, like I'm like three inch deep holes, four inch deep holes, the size of my wheel. It's like the brackets are another thing to get hung up on in Mm -hmm. a kind of catastrophic way. So (laughs) you also need eight more bolts and the bolts in the that go, you know, in the board are like the things that would get hung up. So you need to make sure they're like a certain length. If they're too long, you're bound to like hit something. Yeah. And it puts funny stresses on boards and some people have problems with breaking bracket boards. So yeah. All of this to say, there's nothing wrong with a bracket board, but (laughs) there is, we just pointed it out. (laughs) I think if I lived in Europe and Mm -hmm. I had bike paths that I could pump on and stuff more, like, I mean, I have bike paths, but they're not really like, it's a little different. Uh, They're hilly. Um, you can't, I just can't pump on them unless I'm going downhill. And it's like, if I'm going downhill, I can still push. Mm-hmm. So like I can push really fast, like 
on flat, I can push to 23 and probably like 25, 26 miles per hour. I'm fine pushing. And at that point I'm not pumping anyway. So right. I don't do a ton of pumping, but like if I was in, maybe, maybe if it's in Europe and I got more into pumping, I'd have a bracket set up. You mentioned or like a wiggler. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good one. Um, you mentioned you didn't, you don't do a lot of pumping and I, this reminded me of something that I heard in the interview that Jeff and Paul did together during the, the push relay. And they talked about how Paul was saying how he, prefer, he thinks pushing is actually more efficient when you're trying to like reach those top speeds. And like the example he even gave was, was you at ultra skate, you didn't pump that much for your 300 mostly push. Do you have anything sort of to say on that? Like pumping versus pushing as far as um, trying to reach that sort of like 12.5, 13 mile per hour speed and holding it? Yeah. I mean, so my stance with pumping is like, I pump well, but I don't pump like Eric Palmer. Sure. Um, <laughs> so like I, I have this idea that like for me, numbers wise it's obvious that i need to be pushing and not pumping it's just like when i look at the numbers for me the efficiency i run at it makes more sense to push for somebody like eric palmer or like clark blumenstein those are kind of my two like golden examples of people who pump well mm -hmm. um they seem to pump at an efficiency that's equal to pushing and clark i think pumps way more efficient than he can push even so I think like once you get dialed and you really have a good pumping, especially top mount setup, I think there is a way to be really efficient. And I'm trying to like, I've always been exploring that and trying to get to that point because mm -hmm. switching it up would be good. But for the average person, I don't know if pumping is that efficient at like 13, 14 miles per hour. I think at like eight or nine, it is pretty efficient sometimes, but it's hard like... The, the thing is you just have mechanical losses. Like right. pushing the ground is like the most possible efficient motion you could be doing unless you're pushing too fast and you're overexerting yourself, which isn't really an issue at ultra speeds. Yeah. And then like pumping, there's a lot of like sideways motions, gear, gear ratio reductions. <laughs> like there's a lot of places where you could lose energy in the bushings and stuff. I talked to Jeff about it because I asked him basically the same thing. I just asked you and it was like, you know, it really depends on your goal. Like if you are going for 300, consider like what Adam just said, like, how are you, what, what is your most efficient, like run the numbers? How, what, how do you work best? It's you probably going to be pushing, but like, if your goal is like, I want to get 100 miles this year, or I want to get whatever, like skate for this amount of hours, like you need to use all the things at your disposal, right? You want to make sure you're spreading the load, pumping when you can, uh, switching feet and all that, right? Like, it's a it depends on on your uh, your goal. It's not to say pumping's bad. Pumping's not as efficient. There's nothing. It's not really what we're saying. It's more like, you know, maybe at a certain speed. Yeah, consider like your speed before you sort of want to decide if you're going to pump or not. I think uh, pumping. I'm like in search of this golden ratio of like I want to find the perfect way to pump. And until I find it, I'm not really utilizing it in races, but like, I, you know, like I'm always in search of like becoming as efficient as possible. And for now it's not working for me. And that might just be a me thing. I think with Eric Palmer and Clark Blumenstein, they've figured out a great way to pump. And I just like, you know, I don't have the training. I don't have the practice in getting super efficient in that sort of pumping way. Mm -hmm. But I think there is like 
I think there is a world to be explored in pumping where you could use the ratios, kind of like a bicycle. Sometimes you just need a gear ratio, but I haven't quite figured that out yet. Yeah. There's a lot to discover, I feel like, with, with all that. You have a great video on, on pumping techniques, so if people want to learn more, definitely check that out. Uh, I, I loved it. I thought it was really cool how you kind of did this sort of like bird's eye view of what the the pump <laughs> looks like and nice little science talk. I think we need more stuff like that, you know, in the in the scene. Yeah, I, right? I don't want it to be voodoo. Yeah. Like, there's a lot of voodoo in longboarding and that's something I've always not liked. I mean, like there's a lot of feel and feel and holistic experiences obviously are there for a reason because they're developed on real results a lot of the times. Mm-hmm. But like, yeah, you know, I'm like a numbers guy. So yeah, I would love to like visualize and explain things and not just say like, you got to feel like this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I like what you say about practicing too. Like, even you, like you, you've skated many hours and you even say like, I need to practice this more. I don't know much about my abilities to pump, like the best pumping technique. Like, and that's just it. Like all this stuff takes time, like getting a good push technique, getting a good pump technique. So you could be someone who's like skated for years and years. You put hours in, skated many miles, you can skate switch, whatever. And then like you try and pump and you're like, oh, this is not nearly as efficient. It's like, of course, of course not. You haven't been practicing the pump all those years, maybe, or like really consider how much time you've spent on something and like put it in perspective. Like everything takes time, you know? Yeah. Like it's not getting stuck in your ways and exploring new things. And then also spending enough time to continue to approve it though. Also, you can't just like change something every day. <laughs> yeah. 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 You know, you talk about, changing your setups too, right? Like you mentioned that, like I change my setup every day and that's important, right? It's important to dial in a setup, know how to dial in a setup, but you also have to like give everything a chance, right? Like yeah, which is a hard. You go out and ride and you're like, it's so hard to know, right? Like, is, is this really not good or am I just kind of not used to it yet? How much, how many miles do I have to put in before I realize this isn't it? It just takes time. And that's the hardest part is putting in putting in the time yeah and then it's funny because also like i love messing with setups but i'm also not picky about setups like i'm fine riding a trash setup like i have some really fine-tuned setups and sometimes i'm like i'm like whatever i'll ride crappy randalls with loose kingpins i don't care (laughs) (laughs) so it's like yeah i want to improve things but also like i'm not picky about what i'm riding but if i can't improve it i'll i'll be doing it you know (laughs) Speaking of loose kingpins, those Alston trucks, you you've read, you have those, right? You've ridden those? Oh, yeah. Yeah, you got to buy non-standard kingpins for them, for them to not to be loose, yeah. Uh, I kind of like them loose, I'm not going to lie. Because with the Don't Trips, <laughs> they, they've always gotten stuck on me. I've been riding Don't Trips for so long and like maybe don't take the best care of them. So they've rusted a little bit in places, making the kingpin nearly impossible to get out. Many people have encountered this, I'm sure. Um so when I got those trucks and it was like, oh shit, this thing just slides right out. Like, this is great. <laughs> you know? Yeah. You could get a uh, aircraft grade ones and they're just slightly larger in diameter and they, they're a little tighter in the all sins and they still come out. Oh, they do. <laughs> okay. I'll have to get yeah, those. The, the, yeah. These are like the galvanic corrosion probably with the aluminum and the steel kingpin. Probably okay. like the don't trips get stuck in there. 
that's what's <laughs> happening. Yeah. Cause it, it just gets that little crustiness to it, you know? Right. Yeah. Where, I mean like with that, when you have different types of metals with each other, the electrons flow through them and actually create like corrosion where they become bonded. So it's like having steel in contact with aluminum is kind of a no, no from an engineering standpoint. I mean, it's fine, but like, <laughs> wow. I didn't know it, that. I didn't know yeah. that. Like the metal is literally fusing itself because yeah. because they're just like too, really close to each other and is it like pressure or well when you have two different types of metals they have different chemical structures essentially mm -hmm. so then the electrons want to flow between them because they have different charges oh neat so like as they corrode they actually want to combine each other and the electrons flow between them and then it's like galvanic corrosion the happens so that's so cool <laughs> It's like a fossilized don't trip truck. It could like hide it away for thousands of years and it would just become one. Yeah. It's always interesting. Like the uses of metals and stuff in skating. Yeah. I'm going to remember <laughs> that now. Don't combine metals. That's why my kingpins are stuck. <laughs> yep. Yeah. <laughs> the science of skateboard trucks, you know, it's, it's a tricky thing, right? Like not just that, but also like uh reverse kingpin, traditional kingpin, the angle, like what are all these things doing? Like, I feel like that's another really good topic for someone to do a video on. I don't know. Oh yeah, who... I can do that. That yeah. one's like <laughs> a little bit more contentious. Well, you know, you uh, don't necessarily have to like say what is better. Just explain how it works. Maybe is that oh, yeah. still contentious well, or? With pumping, I'm like, this is how it works. With uh, the trucks, I'm like, people have opinions. Really? Cool. You know, like if people are like, this is how it works. And I'm like, I mean, maybe Yeah, we, it'd be cool to have hard evidence. <laughs> yeah. Again, uh, enough of the voodoo. Yeah. It's a, it's a whole thing. Like, I don't know. The truck science is kind of complicated. If you want to call it that it's people don't have a full grasp on it. <laughs> Like what's a TKP? What's an RKP? What's a RKP with a shit ton of rake versus a TKP with little rake? Like they start kind of blend together. It's like a sliding scale. For me, I just kind of look at the truck and its angle with the ground. And I'm like, that looks about right. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The trucks are like just a crazy thing. I, they're, they're like that for a reason though. <laughs> sure. Yeah. That's what I'll say. It's like that. I'm going to go back to the jazz thing again. Uh, you know, I got a, uh, know the rules, the break the rules. Uh, and, you know, e-boards are like out here, like, we're going to redesign the longboard. We're going to redesign the skateboard. And they're like, we don't know what we're doing, so we're just going to make these heinous things that yeah. are different, but like worse, objectively worse, because they don't understand why we want it this way. It's kind of like you but said, then, just making things for the sake of it. like. And then you have like Rojas and Valkyrie and like those types of things where they do redesign the truck in a way, like with that Valkyrie designs. But they, they understand real longboards and why we want it that way. Sure. And they improve on it. And they don't like ignore everything else and fuck it up like those e-board trucks you see around where they're like, hey, guys, we're going to make a cool truck. Yeah, I, That's just a product of, of it getting bigger. There's always going to be some some people out there just trying to like capitalize, right? And like, or just be revolutionary for the sake of it or innovative without really thinking yeah, too hard exactly and that's what we're trying not to do with the karma wheel it's like uh the e-board wheels a lot of times people are like dang e-board wheels suck and a lot of the times it's because like they're like yeah man this wheel has tons of grip but then it also has a ton of like randomly releasing and trying to kill you and that's just not something like you get when you come into something new 
And that's why I like working with Jeff, first of all. He's actually experienced at longboarding. And th- these, uh, I don't know, like designing a wheel to grip and understand why we do it is such a great thing. And I think like big wheels have a lot to go. Like this Karma wheel is like a really good 92 millimeter wheel. And I think like the Megawatt was the first really bigger than 85 millimeter wheel where it's like, dang, I could ride this around corners fast. That was kind of like a landmark. And I think eventually we'll reach a point where we'll get better 100 millimeter wheels that don't have as many trade-offs to being like, yeah, you can roll fast, but it's hard to pump and sketchy around corners. <laughs> sure, yeah. I think about like inline skaters and their wheels, you know. They're really thin, yeah. but it's a different mechanism, right? They have eight wheels on their feet. It's it's different, but the size is like 100 to 110, right? So like... Yeah, they go up to like 120. I've been... Yeah, I thought about that a lot. And that's... They had some numbers on like why they use durometers. And it's like, this goes back to that contact patch and like deformation thing I was talking about. You know, they have smaller contact patches. They adjust the durometer higher. Sometimes skating bases the durometer off of the inline skating stuff in a bad way or like vice versa. But like Mm -hmm. with the inline skates, people have asked me, why don't you try riding inline skates? Well, first of all, like there's no lip to flex, which means like, you know, inline skates, the pressure is always going directly into the top of the wheel. They're not designed to have like the side forces because when they're moving, they're exactly putting it down where they need to be. That's a good point. So like inline skates, don't use them. Uh, and then they also track in cracks. So like, you know, big wheels, the the larger contact patch allows you to roll over uneven surfaces because it redistributes itself. But like the inline skates, when you hit a crack, you're like, you're dead. You're stuck in it. Yeah. Yeah. Like inline skates, they can just lift their foot. Mm-hmm. We can't lift our foot. We got to roll over things. Yeah. The pressure thing is interesting too, right? Like when because it's such a thin wheel and their feet are just right on top of the wheels. Whereas if you were put those wheels on a skateboard, your pressure is like in the middle of all four of them, right? It's not like on top of anything. And that's likely yeah. just to send you sideways. Like Andy, Andy tried that. He tried using inline skates at one point and he was like, this is a bad idea. Don't do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Seems risky. Yeah, like we need uh we need lip flex and all these things to make a wheel survivable and not scary. Even though like people get hung up in the numbers because they're like a lot of LDP people just go straight. They don't need to like they don't worry about grip as much as I do or like Titus does. Sure. A lot you know, some people like who are new to it just think about I want to be lightweight and they don't really think about all the other things, which goes back to the you need to know everything before you start improvising. Like, yes, it's lightweight, but there's reasons why. Yeah. We don't want to do that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like this whole understanding all the terrain and like just being prepared for that. It's, it's funny. But, like the whole rules theme here is really coming back. Yeah. And it, the thing with rules and longboarding is some people understand the rules and just use those rules. My goal is to understand the rules and break them as much as possible because I have nothing to gain from doing what everyone else is doing. Mm-hmm. Like now that I've gotten where I am speed wise, it's like, you know, like I have optimized my setups. So it's like, if I'm just doing everything else, everyone else is doing, what do I get out of it? I might as well try new things, even though I'll have a lot of duds, maybe I'll find something new that I like. But for someone who's new to it, you don't want to be breaking the rules like that. Like maybe see what feels good first, instead of just immediately going into it and like, Hey, I'm going to just try this wild thing. That's going to feel awful and maybe not work. Sure. Yeah. (laughs) 
which is why you ask more experienced people for things. But then in longboarding, sometimes we've gotten way too stuck into like anecdotes and believing things that we don't have evidence for. Right. That's that voodoo we talk about. And, and to some degree, you know, like you, you got to you got to believe in something. Right. And like just try it out. Is there a point like the only way to, to know if something works is to pretend it works, try it and then see if it actually did. Right. Like be, like actually do an experiment kind of thing. Yeah. Like I've had like the opposite spectrum where I'm like, yeah, I'm going to make a lightweight board lightweight as possible. I have this setup with like balutes and stuff that weighs. Oh, wow. I, I have a 3.9 pound complete setup, <laughs> <laughs> which is one third the weight of some people's setups. Like it's crazy light hollow cord deck I made, the magnesium trucks, balutes, and a full ceramic bearing. It's just to be lightweight. It rides like crap. I hate it. Yeah. <laughs> like I, I like completely like spent my time devoting myself to, I'm going to make the lightest setup possible. And I'm like, wow, this sucks. Yeah. <laughs> so I've gone like all the directions, but sometimes it just doesn't work out. And that's where you want to ask someone else who's tried it already. Yeah. Those balutes were, those were the, those were the hotness for so long for like free riding and stuff. People loved them. Yeah, man. I, uh, what did I do with those? Uh, yeah. I used to commute on like the yellow ones, like 80, 86. A, 86 a. Yellow is 86. Yeah. And they seem pretty big at the time, but that's like miserable to ride on actually. Yeah. Yeah. It was like one of the first wheels that had that core too. And they, they kept falling off the core. They were like, you know, that one's an inline skate core actually. Is it really? Yeah. Which is another reason why like, yeah, you think the inline skates are going to be good. Nope. Yeah. <laughs> Don't do it. Don't do it guys. Um, all right. So, I have a couple questions before we sort of sign off here that I want to make sure I ask you. Is there anything you want to say that we didn't cover that is maybe not skateboarding related, but you want to make sure we get out there on this on this show? Anything on your mind hmm. that we uh, didn't touch? I don't know. I feel like it'd be fun to talk again sometime, but... <laughs> yeah, I don't think we talked about everything. Um yeah, I almost feel like we could split this up. We got so many yeah. topics. Yeah, we could we could talk more. Um, so you want to come back then? You'd be down to come back on the show? Yeah, definitely. It's fun just talking about longboarding. So yeah, yeah. There is potential idea that I spoke with uh, Gavin about about like bringing on a panel of experienced skateboarders and being like, let's get a bunch of user a uh, bunch of like questions for people to submit maybe some tips for them to submit to like other experienced people and then have sort of the panel elaborate on either those questions or the tips and like, you know, do sort of like a yeah. beginner's friendly. Yeah. That'd be cool. Let's see. What do I got? I don't have a lot. I mean, I like, I like ultra, but I guess something I like to say is that like, I feel like there's so much more to distance skating. We focus too much on ultra sometimes. Mm-hmm. That's so valid. Yeah. I find I talk about it a lot with people on this show and like, it's one of those topics you can just keep going and going and going. And like, it just ends up being a, bi a big thing, you know? And like part of the reason why it's the only event that's fired every year for the past 10 years, you know, maybe aside from yeah. Ladiga, if you count the COVID break. Like, yeah, exactly. I like, uh, I've been really into the marathon. That's always been the thing I cared about. So mm -hmm. ultra is kind of that thing where I'm like, I care about it because it's the race. <laughs> yeah. But like the marathon consumes me. 
Okay. <laughs> so you would I like wanted, there to be a marathon again, another marathon series? Yeah. So this year they're finally having one at a uh, skate camp. That's going to be like an official timed one. Yeah. So I'm going to go, I'm going ham at that one. So you're going to be there. You're going to be at skate yep. camp. Oh, yeah, that's sick. Scott was like, yeah, I'm going to do an official timed one. And I was like, okay, I'll be there. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, we just spoke about skate camp in the last episode with Gavin. Um, so that's great to hear you're going to be there. I, you know, I was guilt, guilt tripped by Adam. I mean, uh, sorry, not by Adam, by Gavin. He might get me to come down, <laughs> but I don't know. I have a lot going on this fall. Same. But that sounds like a really fun trip. You're going to try and do the marathon and really go hard for it. That's, that's the next thing on your agenda, kind of? Yeah, that's the goal. I think the marathon has a lot to improve on. Um, you know, like Paul and Jeff set really fast times, but they were never at their best. Like it was always like somebody was sick, somebody was doing something. Dude, the marathon is such a great distance too. Like everyone knows what a marathon is and be like, oh, I ran a marathon. I ran a half marathon. But if you're like, oh, I skateboarded a marathon, you know, it's like something people would, would seek out much more so than a 24 hour ultra skate, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like <laughs> uh, marathons are just like, it's a great distance and it, it's like important to have something other than a crazy ultra endurance events that kind of a festival for like the regular person sometimes. And it's over with by, by the afternoon, you don't have to spend all day on the skateboard. It's great. Yeah. Which is nice, but also then you get less time to socialize. So, well, here's the thing when you're, when the ride is let, like, that opens up that whole day for like activities. Yeah. Get some food. Yeah. Get some like food trucks or something. I remember at the Centennial Skate Fest, that's exactly what it was. It was a skate fest. So we had like eight mile race one night. Next day, there were like food trucks and stuff after the two, you know, like it was like a 5K and a half marathon or something. Right. And then the rest of the day was like you get food, you hang out in the park. It was really fun. And like you got a lot of socializing in then. Whereas that yeah. ultra, it's like you're out. You get to a point where you're so tired, you can't socialize, and and it's not like you miss out on fun on anything. It's just you can't really capitalize like you can when you have your yeah. wits about you. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It's like uh, I'm ready to go when ultra's over. <laughs> yeah, it's so hard. Yeah, and it it sucks in that way because you're just I want to get home. I don't want to be around anyone. I want to go to sleep. And then I want to hang out with everyone. But by that point, everyone's gone. Yeah, exactly. I would love there to be more marathons. Really cool that Scott's doing that skate camp down in Florida. Check it out if you're in the area. If you want to do a marathon, this is a great opportunity. There should be more, definitely. Yeah, I just wish there was more opportunities to show speed other than Broadway Bomb. Like, Broadway Bomb's awesome. And I really want to make it to Central Park Skate Race. But, like, you know, like, Broadway Bomb... I'm just like going slow as heck, trying not to get lost. Yeah. It's just like, stop and go and stop and go. And like, where am I going? Follow Titus. And, you know, it's like, like Jeff and Paul did terrible at Broadway Bomb too. I don't know if they even got into the top three. So I'm pretty happy with third, mm -hmm. but. But Broadway know, Bomb, it's, it's like such another thing, right? It's not like a sprint race. It's like an outlaw race, you know, like, which is, it's still sprinting, but it's, it's not like you're on a trail and it's closed off for you guys to ride or anything like that. Like that's a whole nother ball game where it's like, this is a 5k, 10k or something. And it's like 5k is over in 10 minutes, like crazy yeah. shit. You know what I mean? Like I would love more of that. We, there used to be a lot, a lot of that, like a lot of family friendly events going on pre COVID. Right. 
Yeah, exactly. Family friendly is the thing. Like, I we want to. I want to grow the sport eventually. I don't know how. I think that's I think how. I could probably work <laughs> on that. But like, we need to be more family friendly sometimes. Like, ultra skaters. I think it's a good family friendly event, but it's not the type of thing you're going to be like, "Hey, honey, let's just do a weekend at this 5K." I heard about. Yeah. I mean, it's a I think different. I think that's that. It's like two factors, right? About growing the sport is like family friendly events. It makes it accessible, even for like adults they'll be like oh my kid wants to ride this 5k and then all of a sudden the dad is like picking up his old skateboard or the mom whoever is picking up their own skateboard you know like and i think that's that's a really cool element to add to it that you wouldn't really get from 24 24 hours it's hard to be accessible right especially when it costs a hundred dollars to enter and stuff like that these family friendly events down at the beach stuff like that is super accessible right and yeah, that's my goal eventually. It's like right now I understand that like I'm making videos and I need to make more videos, but it's just a busy time in my life getting married soon. But like it's just like uh you're doing a great job. Yeah. It's just like uh the the sport we need to be a little bit more family friendly to get people there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think your videos are really good though. That's sort of the other element is there's really there's good content there, there's a really good video for ultra skate right the push 300 then there's other ones too you've done really good one um yeah other people have posted videos of ultra skate which is awesome i watch all that shit even when it's just like <laughs> one lap at ultra and it's just some guy or some person you know just filming with no music or i love that it gets me in the zone but like yeah. if we had a full production level like well done video every year that was on youtube for ultra uh, i like I think more people would know about the sport and that would help grow it. Yeah. I mean, people just need to take videos and put it in a folder and I'll edit it. <laughs> just like I have the hardest time filming ultra skate because I'm freaking dying the whole time. That's that's a tough example to like even a smaller event. Any event that fires should have a video that goes with it so we can just spread the spread the word. Yeah, yeah, that's the hard part of the New York scene. It's like there's so much going on in New York, but you only see it in stories. Yeah. You only see it in Instagram stories, maybe the occasional posts. Or like a full race replay with no yeah. Oh, I love uh, Daniel Lindsay's Broadway Bomb video. I don't know if you've seen it. Oh, yeah, it. that was awesome. I wish I could afford a 360 camera like that. It's so sick. He's cruising. It's so... That, Daniel that, Lindsay that, is uh, extremely talented. He's just, he's so fast. Yeah, he has a great video on YouTube. Definitely check that out. He's going really fast. It looks super scary because it's the 360 cam plus... The dude's flying. He knows those roads. Yeah. yeah. Is he from New York or? He's from New Jersey. And I think he goes to ride in New Jer- York. Oh, fellow Jersey. Boy. So he's not a local, but he's he uh, he seems to really know the streets when he's racing it because he is flying. Nice. Yeah. I'm glad you uh, I'm glad you helped with the host, host Ladiga. When, oh, I, yeah, when I do everything sure. I've wanted to, I think I need to like pay it forward and start volunteering. I mean, that'll come naturally, you know? And like the fact that you do the videos though, bro, like that is already paying it forward, you know? Like you're the guy who's, who's been winning, you know? Like you're, and you're super humble. Like that's that's enough, you know what I mean? Like super approachable, like anyone can talk to you, you know, I'm sure you give them the time of day. Like you're not, you know, awesome to hear you say that, um, but you shouldn't feel like you have to do anything, you know what I mean? Eventually I want to set up races and yeah. help other people get into it. Right, like and Jeff, you want like to, People right? forget People forget that Jeff was fast as shit. Some people don't even know Jeff raced. Right. It, it's kind of falling out of the know, like that Jeff was this 
this top dog in the scene, you know, winning all those adrenalinas and stuff like that. Yeah, I'm making a video about the Adrenalina series. I want to release oh, before you are? this virtual race marathon comes out because I Dude. set a really fast time for that and I need to make like a background on the marathon. Can I put that in the podcast? Or do I have to edit that out? Yeah. All right. Yeah, you can put that in. He's and committed. then also I'm making a video about Ultra Skate eventually this year because Jeff took footage and he hasn't done anything with it. But awesome. You know, we'll see when it happens. Yeah. Uh, the dates just got announced for those who may not be may not know but you probably should know by the time this comes out february 15 16 2024 uh miami ultra skate you're, you're gonna have to split this podcast into two one-hour podcasts <laughs> uh i might just do i might just do a long one gavin gave me the okay awesome. he, he said it's okay to do long ones so this will just Sweet. be another long one yeah yeah um yeah, this ultra skate's going to be brutal because it's Thursday, Friday. I don't know how that's going to impact people. I think people should mm-hmm. be aware that it's Valentine's Day week. So, like, yeah. who knows what it's going to be like getting hotels. And then it's also the International Boat Show again. So, yeah. like, who knows about hotels? <laughs> Damn. And it's all weekdays. So, I hope the turnout's good. I think, I think you know, this is the year. We're going to get good weather. And midnight is my birthday this year at Ultra Skate. So oh, that's right. Cool. It's going to be sweet. February 16th. You're turning how old? How old 27 oh Ooh. man god nice crazy yeah no that's great man last question is there any uh social media you want to plug for oh yeah you know i have the instagram there. called at blue ridge project uh you know because i used to live in the mountains the blue ridge mountains and there used to be more of us so it was like the blue ridge project the mm-hmm. show people you could skate in the mountains but now i live in wisconsin and that's a bit of like a weird identity thing I wish I could change it to like Blue Ridge Longboard Project or something. But yeah, we got Blue Ridge Proje- Longboard Project on YouTube and Blue Ridge Project on Instagram. And those are kind of like my skate pages. Nice. Because I like to keep my personal life a little separate from skating. Yeah, <laughs> that's valid. That's valid. Managing multiple Instagram accounts is tough. God, yeah. I mean, two is enough. I can't imagine. <laughs> it sounds like such a silly thing to complain about. Oh, I got all these Instagram accounts, man. But like... It's like, oh, I got a notification from which one? Like, who's who's messaging me where? Like, it's yeah, fun, it's just though. like it's dumb fun. little things. They're like, oh shoot, I just messaged somebody with. Yeah, yeah. You like, I'll I'll see something on one account and be like, oh, I gotta show someone, and then they're like, why did you just open up another chat with me? Like, I we already have the normal one. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, just adds yeah, to and the like I begrudgingly do social media. Like, I'm not really a huge fan of it. I need to do it more, but. I've, I've kind of transitioned to YouTube where it's like, I'm going to release high quality things in YouTube and it seems to be working. That pumping video already has like 10,000 views. That pumping video is amazing. Honestly. Yeah. Stuff like that. Just keep putting it out. Like it adds up and you build this huge catalog of great content and you know, you, you shouldn't necessarily do Instagram is awesome because it's free advertising, but you shouldn't just do it because, because of that. Like if you'd rather do YouTube, just do put your energy into that. You, you only have so much time in your day. I used to post like three times a week or something. And I'm like, I'll post once in a while. So people know I'm alive. Yeah. But like, that's better. Social media is bringing much benefit to like the sports visibility. Mm-hmm. Like uh, with Pantheon, Chase Hiller gets like hundred thousand views, uh, millions of views. And like at the end of the day, just like my, my sales really don't change when people see these viral reels. People just like, are like, wow, that's crazy. Yeah. See ya. Yeah. And like, it's hard to, it's hard to know, right? Like, Oh, 1 million views. But like, what does that actually do? Like, yeah. Like if I get 5,000 views on a reel, which is 
5,000, 10,000 views on a reel is pretty normal for me. I don't think I'm going to convince that many people to skate, but if I could make a YouTube video where I usually get like 3,000 to 10,000 views, I feel like if 1% of those people get into it, it's like, I don't know, I'm getting a hundred people into skating, hopefully. Like, I think the high quality stuff has more potential, like long tracks to get people into the sport than social media. 100%. Maybe social media is just something to keep the stoke going sort of thing. Uh, the, yeah, let them know you're alive. Let them know you have a new YouTube video and then send them to you. Like, it's just free advertising, right? So like, just use it as that. Like you don't, I don't like Instagram as being the center of content just because of how limited it is, right? Like you can do really long videos now, but the quality of the YouTube interface of like having chapters, things like that, like the YouTube interface is just way better than being on Instagram for me personally. Uh, when I'm trying to actually learn something, yeah. I'm trying to actually absorb information. So keep keep up the YouTube, man. That that stuff's really cool. I know a lot of people are enjoying it. Yeah, check out the Blue Ridge Project, Longboard Blue Ridge Longboard Project on YouTube. Yeah, do it up. I got some videos. It's got some videos. Got more coming too. And your next thing is skate camp. So people want to see you next. Yeah, I think in. skate camp. I, I want to go to Broadway bomb, but like financially vacation wise and just like all that stuff. I don't know if I'll be able to make it. That's valid. Yeah. It's a lot. Someday in my life, I'd like to win Broadway bomb, but maybe this isn't the year. Winning Broadway bomb is quite the goal, right? You're, you're risking life and limb. So yeah. So like, I don't know. <laughs> I would love to, I don't know if I have it in me in a, like a talent or safety thing, both. Like people who do it are really talented too. Hey, you weren't far last time. You were right behind Titus. Titus was a little far behind Daniel though, right? Titus and I were just caught watching each other and Daniel. We had no idea he was there and he just like killed it. He just put you in the dust. Because like even like on a one-on-one level, Daniel could beat anyone. Yeah. So like not knowing he was there and then had him and then us racing each other and just watching each other because we didn't realize Daniel's in front. It was like, there was no chance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Daniel's a beast. It was over before it began. I saw him uh, at ultra even like going pretty hard. So yeah. Be fun to see what comes of what he does next. Kind of, you know, speed demon. Yeah. More of these uh, sprint races. We'll see, see some cool stuff. Yeah. Hey man, thanks for coming on. I really appreciate you taking all this time out of your morning. Awesome. Uh, I know you're getting married soon. You got a lot going on in your life. So yeah, this has been awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks, Max. 